are you doing in your prayer time? How are you doing in your Bible reading? How are you doing in sexual purity? These sort of questions. And um, I've been asking Pastor Harold to, to do that for me. Uh, I need that. I, I know we're reaching a lot of people, but for us to continue to reach those people, I need to be corrected and mentored and prayed for. And uh, last week, uh, Rick Warren was in, in Seattle, and, and, uh, and he shared this. Uh, he said that, the average pastor will leave a church because of seven people. And, you know, and every church has got those seven people. And uh, But for the pastor to stay, he, he needs to have someone he can just unload <laughs> sometimes. And um, for me, Pastor Harold is one of those men that I can, and I feel safe unloading. And so um, thank you for supporting Pastor Harold and um, allowing him to to speak into my life too. I cherish that relationship and uh, uh, you know if, if I stay healthy I can continue to reach people. You know one time the nose and nose said to the eyes you know what I'm tired of carrying your sunglasses or your eyeglasses around. That's it. I don't benefit from the eyeglasses. I'm tired of carrying your eyeglasses around. And so the nose told alright get your eyeglasses off. And as the nose was walking with the body, it hit the, the first tree. It was by. You see, every, every person, uh, every nose needs the eyeglasses to see. I mean, even though it seems like the nose does not benefit from the eye, eyeglasses. And sometimes you don't understand, well, why, why the eyeglasses? Well, the nose, you, though you don't indirectly benefit, you benefit because the eyes can see and they guide you. You know, and, and so... Uh, I need Pastor Harold um, to, to do that for me, and um, I, I really honor Pastor uh, Harold and, and the blessing that he has in my life. And so hopefully um, uh, he, can, he can continue to do that for me, uh, but I appreciate him a lot. I want to share something in my heart today that um, I'll speak to myself today if I can. Uh, and hopefully some of you can can also hear a little bit about it. There's a story in, in Luke chapter 17 where Jesus cleanses the ten lepers. Okay? And many of us know this story and we've read it many times. And um, after Jesus cleansed and healed the ten lepers, the Bible says that only one of them came back to thank Jesus. Only one. The question is, well, what about the other nine? How come they did not come back? And so I was doing some research and I found um, some new translations that had some, some of those excuses that the other nine people had. So the person number two, he said this, he waited to see if the cure was going to be real or fake. The third person waited to see if it would last. The fourth one said he would see Jesus later. I'll see him later. And tell him later. The fifth one decided that he never had leprosy. Why should I thank him? I, it was probably just an imagination. I never really had it. The sixth one said he would, he would have gotten healthy anyways by himself. It wasn't really Jesus. It was just you know time and he was healed by himself. The seventh one went and, and gave the glory to the priest. Oh, yeah, you know, it's all the same thing. Yeah, Buddha, Hindu, whatever, gave the glory to the priest. The eighth one said, oh, well, 
Jesus really didn't do anything. It's not like he had to physically do anything. He just said a couple words. Why do I need to thank him? The ninth one said, oh, any rabbi could have done it. It's not like it was just Jesus. Anybody could have said those words and I would have been healed. The tenth one said, hey, I was already improving anyways. It wasn't really Jesus. And you know, and sometimes when we think about lepers and, and thinking, well, if we were lepers and we were healed, we'd come back and thank Jesus. But the, the reality is, is that if we would all understand how sinful and wrathful and what we have earned, we'd understand that our disease was much worse than, than leprosy. You can only understand grace if you understand judgment. You are most loving, patient, kind, and gracious. When you are aware that there is no truth that you could give another that you don't desperately need yourself. You are the most humble and gentle when you think that the person you are ministering to is more like you than unlike you. Really, we were all worse in worse shapes than lepers. And if there's anybody to be grateful, it needs to be us. Today I want to take some time and I want to look at two Bible characters. You know, we live in a society where we, we know a lot of cartoon characters and superheroes and sometimes even in the church we know all the superheroes and VeggieTales and, and all these other people, but we don't know Bible characters. And so I want to take two Bible characters and uh, just kind of share a little bit about their life. And I know some of you, <clears throat> Brother Don, you'll know everything about these Bible characters and others of you might hear a little bit about them for the first time but but I want to share about two Bible characters the first one that I want to share about is a man by the name of Saul okay in the Old Testament it was a man by the name of Saul and so let's just imagine Saul is, is gonna sit at this chair okay first Samuel 9 1 through 12 tells us a little bit about Saul and who he was it describes to us gives us a description of this man so it says this, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Ebal, the son of Zerah, the son of Bechorah, the son of Ephiah, the son of Benjaminite. Okay, so here's a description about him. A mighty man of valor, okay, and he had a son whose, whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. Really beautiful. And there was none more handsome person than he amongst the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any other people. So this is the description that we get of Saul. Okay, Four characteristics about Saul. When we, what we know from Saul is these four things. One, he was wealthy. Okay, He's wealthy. Second thing, he had an attractive appearance. He looked good. Third, he was uh, physically large and well-developed well body. I mean, he was... He was the tallest guy. And uh, he was good with words. Given a chance to speak before crowds, he was eloquent. Okay? So these are all, these are four characteristics that we know about Saul. The concern, though, about those characteristics is that all four of these external marks are external marks. And they commanded attention and gained him quick advantages. If the only thing that defines you and who you are is external success, is your appearance, 
that success won't always last. What needs, to, what needs to define us more than our external person is our inner char- character. There's a quote that says this, you only go as far as your character will take you. You see, Saul, everything that we know about him is external qualities. But there was no internal character. Because what defined him was external Uh, He spent very little time uh, pondering about the need of others. He didn't build up and focus on building a relationship with God because, well, he didn't need God. He's tall. He's strong. He's eloquent. He can do it all. I don't need God. He became a busy man conquering the world by himself. And if you remember, there was a battle with the Philistines. And, um, and, and, and so he was going to bring a sacrifice before he was going to go fight. Well, to bring a sacrifice, he needed Samuel the prophet. And so he waited for Samuel the prophet, and Samuel the prophet didn't come. And he's like, man, forget you, Samuel. I'm going to do it by myself. I don't need you. I don't need no priest. I can do it. And so he, he brought a sacrifice by himself which certainly was a sin before God. It's not something that he was supposed to do. And the Bible says that the end of Saul, his end is, God says this, Now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. Very often, people who are driven by their external characteristics only will end up in the same shoes that Saul did. And you know what Saul spent the rest of his life doing? He spent the rest of his life running after, and, and he spent his energies riding, uh, running after David, holding on to his throne with his own strength. He'd do anything. If he had to, he'd kill David as long as he can hold on to his throne. I want to introduce you to another man in the Bible whom, who were also given some external characteristics but very opposite of who Saul was. And this is a man by the name of John the Baptist. Okay, So John the Baptist was born around the time of Jesus and um, he, was, he was related to Jesus. And um, John the Baptist, if there's, if there's any... Like, a, you know, every person you can kind of use two or three words that you can kind of describe him. I describe John the Baptist as the man who lost his job. Let me explain why. This is the external characteristics of John the Baptist. So he, so he was born right before Jesus and he was like the prophet. He was the prophet that was, you know, calling out and saying, hey, Jesus is coming. So this is what all we know about him from the Bible. He had nothing to boast about. He was not rich. He had no attractive appearance. He looked like a homeless man. He lived in the desert. We assume that his parents died early because when his parents gave birth to him, they were, they were old. Okay? And so we assume he grew up without parents. Okay? No appearance. Nothing to boast about. Grew up in the desert. Ate an austere diet. And man, he wore some off-brand clothing. (laughs) 
totally off-brand clothing. But you see, what defined him and why we know about and what we know about John the Baptist is an inner character, an inner strength, something driven, something, something that he's moved by. You see, John, he had a heavenly assignment. He he wasn't even the word driven is a bad word to describe John because he wasn't driven like Saul, who was kind of driven to just, man, I'm just gonna do it by myself. Samuel, you're not coming, it's all right. I'll do it by myself. He was just driven. John the Baptist, the word that I describe him more is is someone who was called. So he got a heavenly assignment from God, and he's like, All right, I'm just gonna do what God told me to do. Whether or not people show up, whether or not they like me, I'm just gonna do what I'm called to do. And so he dedicated himself to the writings of Isaiah, the prophet. Living in the desert, he would just proclaim prophetic words. Okay. Now, so having kind of learned a little bit about John the Baptist and having learned a little bit about Saul, let's kind of speak about the differences between these two men. Look at their reaction, the reaction of Saul and the reaction of John the Baptist when they realize their vocational security is under attack, when they realize their career is about to end. Okay? Saul, he hears people in the field saying, Oh, Saul has killed thousands, but David has killed ten thousands. And he hears all these things about David, and now he's heard, and, and he says to David, I know you're gonna have you're gonna take the throne after me. And what does, how does Saul react when his vocational security is under attack? He goes after David. He tries to kill him. I mean, he feels like he's got to defend himself. I mean, God has nothing to do with this. If I don't do it, if I don't take things into my hands, ain't nothing going to happen. I've got to do it all by myself. He reacted violently, followed David into the desert to try to destroy him. But John the Baptist, look what the Bible says happened to him when he found out that, hey, whoa, his popularity is now in a decline. Jesus has come. Right? And his role was just to lead up to Jesus. Well, now Jesus came, and guess what? <laughs> He's no longer needed. He's not, his popularity now is, he's losing his job. He's not needed anymore. He sees Jesus and guess what he does? He says, hey, all right, there he is. That's the Lamb of God. That's who are you to follow. Let me read something. I didn't bring, let me, don't want to open my electronic Bible. I'm going to open my, if you have a Bible, read in John 1. John is after Genesis, before Revelations. John 1, verse 35, says this, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Okay, so he's standing around. He's got some disciples, John the Baptist. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And look what happened. The two disciples heard him say this. And guess what they did? Bye-bye, John. They followed Jesus. So, 
So he introduces Jesus, and guess what? People are, are okay, John, well, we're, we're going to leave you now. He's losing his job. He's got disciples that he's been training. He's been putting into him them. And, 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 well, I've been faithful. I've been doing what I'm supposed to do. Why are you leaving me? I, I wasn't unfaithful. Why are you leaving me? And one time, disciples uh, or people came to John. His disciples came to John. In, in John chapter 3, verses 25, listen to this. His disciples came to, to John, and, and so, here it says this. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all the people are going to him now. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I say, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. The Bible says that disciples came and said, Hey, John, uh, you had a bunch of crowds coming to you. and I mean, you were, yeah, you wore off-brand clothing, but you had a crowd here. Even soldiers came to be baptized you. I mean, everybody was coming to see what's going on. And, and John, well, now the crowd has left and they're following him. And, and John the Baptist said, hey, hey, hey. He must increase. My role is done. My role is done. You see, John never felt like he owned the crowds. John was just preparing the crowds to bring him to Jesus. We're on Saul's end. Oh no, this is my, this is my throne. No, it's me. It's by my strength. And and you know, if you're gonna help me, God, great. If not, it's it's in my hands. And when 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 I can use God, I will. If I if He's not responding, I'm gonna take matters into my hands. It's my throne. John the Baptist, hey, that's not my crowd. I can't claim the crowd, you know, under me. That's it's Jesus. It's all about Him. He needs to increase. John felt that the crowd was not his and passed it on to Jesus. What about you? Your career, your assets, your natural gifts and your spiritual gifts, your health. When you start losing those things, when you start losing those things, are you a Saul or are you a John the Baptist? Who's willing to say, Lord, you know, it's not. Do those things own you or, or do you merely manage them? In the name of the one who gave him to you. You see, when Saul loses things, it's a life crisis. I mean, we've got to fight. Here's, here's the big difference. John the Baptist is, is a man who's driven, who feels like it's all about him and his strength. And, 
and John Saul is, and John the Baptist is, is, is he's just got a calling from God. And he's just going to be faithful to that calling. Uh, another thing that really helped John the Baptist, okay, is that he knew who he was not. Sometimes for us, knowing who we are not will help us. There was a time when some people came to John the Baptist and they said, Hey, John the Baptist, are you the Messiah? You look like you're the Messiah. I mean, look at you and then you sound like a Messiah. Are you the Messiah? Guess what John the Baptist could have done? Hmm, not a bad idea. Sure, um, yeah, 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 I'm the Messiah. The crowds would have increased. But he would have known it, that's a temporary thing. Knowing who he was not was the beginning of knowing who he was. But he knew that if he would have been pretending to be who he is not, sooner or later, eventually, everything would come to an end. For us, we must realize and also know our limited role. Our limited role. And, and to some of you, even our limited role in some of the decisions our children make. Our limited role in some of the decisions our children make. It is our role to, to train, to teach. It is our role to pray. But it is them before the Lord. And it's a decision that they make. We've got to understand our role. Our role in salvation, we don't save anybody. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts and that leads to salvation. It is not our role. We haven't saved anybody. Now we preach the gospel, and that's our role. We proclaim the good news, and that's our role. But it's God who saves. We can't take credit. Well, you know, He saved, and He saved, and it's my credit. Our role is limited. I think it's going to be easier for us to continue to proclaim the good news and and be confident about it because we, we know who we're not. We're not the saviors of the world. Our job is not to be the convictors that go around and convict everybody. That's the, that's the role of the Holy Spirit. This is going to help us in some of our relationships. Because sometimes I think we, we believe we're called to be the convictors. <laughs> yeah, we encourage. Yeah, we correct. But... It's the Holy Spirit that will convict, convict and lead someone to salvation. Apostle Paul wrote about himself one time. He said this, I was the worst of sinners. I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. And the grace of our Lord was poured out to me abundantly. A man with a memory like that regularly freshened is not likely to think of himself more highly than he ought to. Well, how much more we need, we need John the Baptist in our community, in our church, people who, they're called by the Lord and, and not driven out to prove something, to show something. Um, I want to read some things to you here. Um, If I'd be asked 
the question of um, if there was anything, uh, if, if there was a time, for example, in my, and I was dying, and there was a speech that I can give to my son, Matthew, my last speech, I thought to myself, what would I say to him? My last words to Matthew. I'm dying and, and, and I've got 10 seconds. There's 10 words that I could say to him. What would I say to him? I'd kind of refer back to this topic here and some of the things I'm sharing and the differences between Saul and John the Baptist. And I would, I would say, son, if the last words that I can say to you, I would say this. Son, remain teachable. Remain teachable. Don't become this person like a Saul who thinks you've got it all and you've got to drive and you've got to push and you that that is not a that that's that's your fault right there. Remain a person who's teachable. One of the people that scares me, okay? Now some of you might might um, have a problem with this, but this is a good man. But he scares me. He's done great things in the history of Christianity, but he scares me. We honor him and we thank God for some of the truths that he's preached, but he scares me. And this is a man by the name of Martin Luther. Okay. Uh, there was a time, man, he, he, 95 Thesis, he brought the Protestant Reformation. We just celebrated, what, 400 years. Great man in history. And an early age, early stage of his life, Man, he did great things, that, you know, the, uh, by faith, through grace. I mean, some of these things, amazing revelations. And we thank God for, for a man like Martin Luther. But I was studying a little bit his life. And, and so, you know, it was one time in his life, there was a season in his life when he got the revelation of, of faith alone and grace alone and, and got the 95 Thesis and was like, Wow! But life continued. And he continued to teach and preach. And, and he, just, he just began to not like Jews for some reason. And let me read some things about sort of the ending of his life. In 1543, Luther published a, a, a little booklet called On the Jews and Their Lies. In which he says that the Jews are... are some kids in here, but very inappropriate woman. That is, no people of God and their boasts of lineage, circumcision and law must be accounted as filth. They are full of the devil's feces, which they swallow in like swine. The synagogue was a defiled bride, yes, an incorrigible bad word, and an evil bad word. And he argues that the synagogues and schools must be set on fire. Their prayer books destroyed, rabbis forbidden to preach, homes raised, and property and money confiscated. This we show no mercy or kindness, afforded no legal protection. And these poisonous, enormous worms should be drafted into forced labor or expelled for all time. He also seemed to advocate their murder, writing, We are at fault if we're not slaying them. Shortly before his death in February 18, 1546, Luther preached four sermons in, in a city called Islaben. To his second last, to last sermon, he, he appended that he called his final warning against the Jews. 
The pain of this short work is that authorities who expel Jews from their lands should do so if they would not be converted to Christianity. Luther's work, listen to this, acquired the status of scripture within Germany. And he became the most widely read author of his generation, in part because of the coarse and passionate nature of his writing. The prevailing view of historians is that Luther's anti-Jewish rhetoric contributed significantly to the development of anti-Semitism in Germany. And in 1930s and 1940s provided an ideal foundation for the Nazi party and their attacks on Jews. Some Reynold Lewin writes that whoever wrote against the Jews for whatever reason believed he had a right to justify himself by triumphantly referring to Luther. According to Michael, just about every anti-Jewish book printed in the Third Reich contained references to and quotations of Luther. On November 10, 1938, on Luther's birthday, synagogues began to be burned in Germany. December 17, 1941, seven Lutheran regional church confederations issued a statement agreeing with the policy of forcing Jews to wear the yellow badge since after his bitter experience, Luther has strongly suggested preventative measures against the Jews and their expulsion from German territory. And I share this not to paint Luther you know, in some negative context, because we thank God for what he's done. But I want you to see two separate periods in Luther's life when here he is studying the Bible and, and being teachable and learning things and, man, things that the whole church was just against and fresh truth and revelation. But as he continued, he's, I'd say he went off course a little bit, <laughs> which was, you know, instrumental then in, by the Nazis and used in every publication to, to help murder millions of people. And that scares me. Because I'm no Martin Luther. I'm just a Russell. And I've got my weaknesses. And if Luther can fall or sidetrack so can I. And if Saul, this great man who's got these external characteristics, tall and man, he's you know so great in his speech, and if and if he can come to a point where it's no longer about God and, and, and his kingdom, it's about him and his own throne. Lord help me. Help me to reach the end of my days where I'm just I'm being teachable. I'm being like John the Baptist where it's not about me. It's about the Lord. I heard a saying the other day, um, the greatest day in a young minister's life is not the first day, it's the last. And you know, very often we'll, we'll look at somebody like a Saul, somebody like, wow, look at this young guy, and look at this family, and look at this businessman, and, and wow, and that's what amazes us, and this is, this is whom we give praise, and this is whom we honor in our public services, and this is who we want to imitate when, when it's, well, it's not really that that we need to be pointing to. It's, 
It's more on the Lord because we're all human. Um, let me read some things just a little bit. Everyone you minister with and to is flawed human beings still in need of redemption. No one around you has a completely pure heart. No one is totally free of sinful thoughts, desires, cravings, or motives. No one always says the right thing. No one always makes the right choices. No one is always noble in his intentions. No one is free from acts of selfishness or self-aggrandizement. No one is completely loyal. No one always has your back. Because of this, relationships in the body of Christ are messy and predictable. Because of this, we must esteem preach and point to Jesus at all times in the face of his glory when we worship and come into his presence in the face of his glory we are all left naked with no glory whatsoever to hold before ourselves or anyone else that's why we all need to spend time in his glory when the awe of God is absent it is quickly replaced by the awe of ourselves if you're not living with God, the only alternative is to live for yourself. It is only in our brokenness, in the face of our own sin, that we can give grace to fellow rebels to whom God has called us to minister. It's only when our identity is firmly rooted in Christ that we are free from seeking to get our identity out of the things we do or the things we have. A success of a ministry... It is always more a picture of who God is than a statement about the people who are involved in that ministry. Don't confuse ministry success with God's endorsement of its leadership or the leadership style, lifestyle. It's not about, if there's success, it has nothing to do with, well, this leader and his lifestyle. And, and it's God. God at work. I am more and more convinced that what gives a ministry its motivations, perseverance, humility, joy, tenderness, passion, and grace is a devotional life of the people doing the ministry. There's a, uh, when you talk to high school, college, uh, or college recruiters who recruit for like football teams, for example, and you ask them, what is, what is one of the character traits that you look for football players? You look most in football players. They'll say this. One of the most sought-after character traits in high school football players is a teachable spirit. A teachable character is more valuable than a talent. Because you can have all the talent in the world, but if you can't learn a system, if you can't, you know, if you can't learn that, hey, you, you, you don't do that here. You, you, instead of running for, for, to catch the ball here, your role here is going to be to block somebody so that he can catch the ball. Unless you're willing to understand that and understand your role in the team and your role in the kingdom, you, no college wants you. No football team will want you. It's not always about one player. If it's always about that one player, the team loses. And the more teams are built around one player, the more these teams, when they're out, man, the team is done. 
In the Cowboys' code of conduct, uh, one maxim states, never miss an opportunity to stop talking. When we are talking, we are not listening, and that's not learning. Uh, in Matthew 5.3, the Bible says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit is to be aware of your own lack. To be poor in spirit is to realize that you don't have it all spiritually. You are humble, open to change, open to grow. You are teachable. Um, I'm going to end with this. You know, so, so what can practically, what can we do to be more like John the Baptist? Realize that our knowledge is incomplete. And therefore, when we're in disagreement with someone, there's a slight possibility that we might be wrong. Having a teachable spirit is a, is a freeing thing. It frees us from the overwhelming burden of always having to be right. If, if you think you're always right, that's a heavy burden to carry. Being teachable means we say things like, uh, well, tell me more. I want to understand from your perspective. How do you see it? What could we do differently? What do you suggest? I might be wrong in my opinion. What do you think about it? In other words, we are fellow explorers, not just debaters of our position. You know, there's, there's a scripture that says that those that always share their opinion, they're fools. And so being always opinionated is not a godly character trait. Being teachable also means that we ask ourselves silently in our hearts, what can, I, what can each person I come into contact with teach me? Even if we think those, those people are out, out to lunch, what can I learn from this person? Every person that God ever created is something to teach us. And the fourth thing is, being teachable means that I truly believe that God isn't, isn't finished with me yet. And therefore, I offer myself to God in each and every circumstance and ask to be taught and shaped more into the image of Christ so that we, gain, so that we may gain more of the mind of Christ, more of the life of Christ within us. Christ is not done with us. He's still at work in each and every one of us. And if he would just, you know, accept that fact and accept that fact in each, in each person, we'd be so much more gracious to one another. There's an interesting man in the Bible, one more man, Solomon. And if he would ask all the kids, hey, well, why did Solomon fall? Or when did Solomon fall? The strong, remember the strong man? Most people will say he fell when? When his, uh, not Solomon, I'm sorry, Samson. <laughs> what am I thinking? Hello. Samson here. Most will say, when did Samson fall? When his hair got cut. Well, did you know that that was his final fall? When he was born, he was given three things that he should not do. Samson, here are three rules for you. One, no wine. Not even close to anything wine-related. Two, don't touch a dead body. You cannot touch a dead body. Three, 
Don't cut your hair. Listen what happens. So Samson is walking around looking for a girlfriend. The Bible says, you know where he's walking to? So he's going to go see a girlfriend. Guess what he walks through? A winery. A vineyard where there's wine being made. Samson, what are you doing there? You're not supposed to touch this stuff. Yeah, maybe others, but not you. Get away. Oh, let me just try to walk by. Oh, I'm not zapped. I'm still okay. I still got some strength. Oh, okay. That's, that's, maybe, maybe God really didn't mean it. <laughs> so then, and then he's walking again through the winery, and guess what happens? A lion attacks him. So he kills it. Goes, goes spend some time with the girlfriend. He's going back home, and he sees the body of the dead lion. Guess what he does? He stretches it out, and he touches that corcus because there was some honey there. Samson, stop! You're not supposed to touch a, a dead body. You're not. That's one of your three rules. You cannot touch a dead body. Samson, stop! He, he touched it. I'm still alive. I guess it's, maybe God didn't really mean those three things, huh? Um, hey, it's all right. I, you know, this is cool. So you see, when his hair was cut, that was just the last straw. His heart was just like, hey, maybe God's not real serious about this stuff. His fall, you know, wasn't just one day, bam, his hair cut and he fell and God was like, man, that's it, you're, you're done. No. It was much longer before that. Much longer before that. And I share this because we too, like Samson's, will very often go through areas in our lives and, and, and do things that are often thinking, well, you know, maybe I can just get away with these things and not realizing that we're becoming more and more like Saul. And, and again, going back to the, to the eyeglasses and the nose story, we need people in our lives who will say, hey, hey, stop here. Don't you remember God told you you can't touch dead bodies? Don't you remember this is one area where you need some change? Um, we need to be teachable. How we need more John the Baptists and less of Saul's. And me, how much more uh, I need to just trust God in my life, in my family, in my request before Him and, and not so much thing, well, it's all up to me. It's my strength and my ability. It's not. God is in control. Tonight, I want us to have some time of prayer and, um, and reflection upon our hearts and really ask the Lord, well, are there areas in our lives where we're just kind of, you know, it's about us and about our own throne? Um, it's interesting, when you read about Saul... He was also always scared. Well, what would people say? Remember when, when, uh, so when he was about to bring the sacrifice and Samuel wasn't coming, so the people around him were like, man, Saul, it's time to bring the sacrifice. It's time to... And so he brought the sacrifice and Samuel came to him and was like, what'd you do? And guess what he said? Well, well, well you know, the people around me were just kind of pushing me and they, they were complaining and, and so I did it because of the people. Samuel's like, it has nothing to do with the people around you. You and your heart. You knew what you were supposed to do. 
Then in another example, they went to battle. And God said, hey, you cannot take any of the animals, any of the gold. You got to just kill it all and destroy it all. And so they went and they won the battle. And the Bible says that some of the people were like, well, Saul, come on, look at this. It's gold. It's animals. It's good stuff. Let's, let's just take it. And the Bible says he was, he was kind of afraid of the people. And so he's like, okay, you guys can take it. And then Samuel came to him. The prophet was like, hey, well, why did you do this? He said, well, well, well the, the people, they, they, they wanted it. And, uh, you know, they were kind of telling us, hey, let's you know, be smart here. And so I kind of fell for the temptation of people. So one of the characteristics of people who kind of, you know, tend to trust themselves and their strength is these people are very often moved by people and people's opinions. And people's opinions is a high value for them. Well, what, what do people say? Are you being moved by people's opinions or are you just listening to the Lord, His guidance, His truth, His word in your life? Want us to have some time of prayer, and this is our last night. You know, four nights, five services, great time. But you know, there's only my role is very limited. I can say some things, but now it's it's you and God. You'll forget the stuff I shared, you know, in a couple days. But but you and God, there needs to be there needs to be some talking there. And I want us to just spend some time in that. Uh, spend some time talking. I don't know when last time, you know, how often you kneel. And, you know, I know different people. I, I had knee surgery about a month ago, and so there was a season I, you know, for some weeks I couldn't kneel. I, I'm very careful in how I kneel too now. I had a torn meniscus, and so not everybody can. But, but when you look at Scripture, there's, you know, people spend some time kneeling before the Lord. If you're able to tonight, let's let's kneel. Uh, if it's if you can't, you sit. Let's just have some time before the Lord in prayer. And uh, and ask us where where's our heart at? I'd love to pray with you here at the altar, Pastor Harold. We'll we'll pray with you. Uh, if if you need some prayer, we'd we'd love to pray with you. And um, just ask yourself: Are you a John the Baptist? Just, just following the Lord, or are you a Saul where you're just driven by your own desires and your own motives? What drives you? You yourself?